So our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 22. It's a relatively short reading, and this is, um, I know the first Sunday of Advent, but we're going to take uh, the, the, this week and next week to finish our study of 1 Thessalonians that we started in September, and it still fits. 1 Thessalonians, uh, probably more than any letter written by the Apostle Paul, uh, is about how we live in light of what Jesus did in his first coming as we prepare and wait for his second coming, which is really what the season of Advent is all about. So I think it's appropriate that we finish this letter. And if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. The verses are short, but we will be going through the text. If you want to use one of the Bibles that's in the chair racks, then you can turn right to it, uh, page uh, 1258. 1258 is where you'll find 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, If you're able, let me invite you to stand. Like I said, it's short. It won't take long, but short or long, this is God's word. And when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 22. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, what we just read divides up into two sections. You can see that uh, in the bulletin. The two points uh, show the two sections that are are printed there. The first one, uh, the first point is about doing the will of God. The second one is about receiving the word of God. But the main focus of what I want to talk about this morning is really the, the first point, uh, and that is doing the will of God. Now, what I'm going to do, what I want to do is use the second point really as an introduction, an introduction, a, um, a word of caution, a warning almost. All right, look at verse 19. This is the warning. Look at the warning. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. That sounds like a warning, sounds like a command, but a command that has like a a warning. Don't do this. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Now we got to figure out what this word quench means. We don't use the word quench a lot unless you're talking about quenching your thirst. If you're watching a Dr. Pepper commercial or something, I guess you hear the word quench, but there's not much else in life where we hear this word. Now in the Dr. Pepper sense, uh, quench is to, to satisfy. And that's a, that's a, a valid uh, definition of the word. But that's not really what Paul has in mind here. At least it doesn't really fully capture it. Right? Some English translations to this verse will actually add a word that will help us to get a little bit closer to the idea of what Paul was talking about. Right? It'll say, do not quench the Spirit's fire. Right? That's not, it's, it's, it's valid. That's understandable. Spirit of God is often likened to a fire elsewhere in the, in the Bible. An image of the power of God, the light of God, the illuminating power of God of God, right? So if it's taken in that sense, right, then the word quench would mean something like to extinguish. Do not extinguish the fire of the, of the Holy Spirit. And that gets us closer because Paul is telling us, telling them, the Thessalonians, that when they heard someone prophesying, when they heard someone teaching the commands of God, that they should be careful to make sure that the commands of God were that, that they were true, that they were good, that they weren't being taught something that's wrong or by evil. And he says you do that by testing it, testing what you hear by what the Word of God says elsewhere, and asking God through His Spirit to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. That's what we just did. That's what I just prayed, right? To, to, to hear and to see what is good and what is 
true. Now, to do that, to really be able to, to rightly understand what you're reading or what you're hearing in the Word of God to be right and to be true, to understand the prophecies of right and true, we need the work of the Holy Spirit to, to do that. And the danger is that we will quench the Spirit. Now, it doesn't, it's not actually, it doesn't mean that you have individually, you have the power to extinguish the Holy Spirit. I can eliminate the Holy Spirit right now. And sometimes with that word quench, if we mean by it extinguish, that's what we might take it to that kind of conclusion, that you have the power to just put out the Holy Spirit. You don't. Right? But what you can do, right? and this is the danger that's being warned against here, what you can do is you can certainly shade your eyes to the light, you limit your exposure to, to his power. Right? If, 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 if the, the Holy Spirit is sort of the oxygen by which you're breathing, right? you, you can crimp the, crimp the oxygen tube. You can step on the oxygen hose. Now, how does that happen? How, how, how can that happen? I mean, right now, how can that happen? Right? Why is the warning valid well actually there's lots of ways that you can be distracted right now that you can be in need of the warning not to quench the spirit right in fact are you thinking of are you thinking of something later not focused entirely on what we're talking about here right, maybe it's lunch maybe you can smell the soup right could be a quenching are, are you thinking about the test tomorrow that you have to that you have to take right are you thinking about someone that you need to call later are you thinking about the big game tonight Right? That's the danger here. Right? What about when you're listening to me? Right? Are you, are, will you be rating my sermon rather than applying it? Right? Thinking about how, you know, if I were doing it, I think I would make the point this way. I think I would reorder this or that. Right? That'd be my danger. That's how I would temp be tempted to quench the Spirit when I listen to someone preaching. Right? We all have our things. That's the danger. So let me just encourage you. Don't quench the Spirit as we look at what God wants to teach us here. Teach us here. What He wants to teach us about and this is the first section of what we read, what he wants us to teach us about his will, about doing his will. This is verses 16 to 18. This is really where I want to spend most of our time. Look at these verses. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, is known in a lot of his other letters for some very long sentences. In fact, English translators are often forced to break Paul's long, ongoing run, multiple clausing sentences, to break them into shorter sentences because it's just hard to, hard to follow. But here, in what, we just, in, in, in what we see in verses 16 and 17 and 18, here, to use sort of the modern writing lingo, here what we see is writing that is crisp. It's short, it's direct, it's clear. Right? Don't use three words when you can use when you can use one, look at what he said, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, right, bang, 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 and the simplicity is striking, what's the will of God for your life, what's the will of God for how people are to live in peace with one another, that's the larger context of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, living in peace with one another? What's the, what's the will of God for how to do that? How, what, does, what does he want them to do? It may not be easy, as we'll see, but it's certainly not complicated what he's saying. Look at the three things that he commands here. Right? It's not complicated. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Now, each one of those could be their own sermon. They really could. Right? But very quickly, let's run through each of them, right? This is God's will for you. What's God's will for my life? Well, it's not less than this. The first thing, rejoice. Another way to say that is that God's will is for you to be, to be joyful or to be filled with joy. Now, that's interesting here. 
right? Even what Paul is commanding. He's not commanding an action, an activity, a behavior. He's commanding an attitude. He's, com- he's commanding an, 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 an inner feeling, not just compliance, but, but joy. It, it's a very uh, well-worn illustration. Maybe you've heard it, but um, a young girl having one of those days with her mother, you know those days, parents, right? Constant back and forth. Finally, the mom just had enough. Jenny, would you just go sit in the corner, just right now, just go sit in the corner. Don't get up until I tell you. So Jenny goes over to the corner and sits down, and a few minutes later, she calls out to mom. Mom, I'm sitting down, but in my mind, I'm standing up. In other words, you can command my outside, but you can't command my inside. God's commanding the inside here. And he tells us to be joyful. Now, it's important to remember, and this is really important, because a lot of us go about and say, wow, that's really hard, because, you know, there's a lot of times in my life where I just don't, I just don't, feel, I just don't feel happy. I right? think they're going bad for me. I mean, think of the things that we just prayed for. And we have to remember that biblical joy is not the same thing as just, like, giddy happiness. In fact, it, it is very possible to be sad or to be angry about something and still be joyful, because joy is not a fleeting sort of manic state of, uh, along the, you know, the bipolar spectrum. No, joy is a, it's a settled inner contentment and peace that comes from knowing that God is in control of what happens and that he can be trusted with what is going on in our lives. Another place where Paul talks about this that I think is very helpful is Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul describes this, this joy as a peace which surpasses all understanding. See, if we just understand joy as something that's easily understandable, well, then you ought to be able to make a one-to-one correlation with someone's experiences and circumstances in their life and their sense of joy. So, well, of course, they're joyful because everything's going well for them, right? That's understandable. Paul says, no, no, no. It is a peace. It is a contentment that surpasses all understanding, it's beyond one's ability to comprehend or understand. In fact, Paul goes on. He says that he has learned in his own life, in whatever situation he's in, in, every and every, in any and every circumstance, he's learned, he says, to be content. And that's the idea of joy. That's what Paul means when he says it's God's will for you to rejoice, to be content in every and all circumstance, regardless of how those circumstances may be playing out, because you trust in the God who has control of those circumstances even when you feel like you may not. That's number one. He also says it's God's will for you, verse 17, to pray. Now, what is prayer? Our, our, our shorter catechism, our Westminster shorter catechism, the, the doctrinal statement of the, uh, of the Presbyterian church and, and our church, right? They have an answer for that. What is prayer? Now, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for all things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That's a bit of a mouthful, but it's all there. Prayer is talking to God, right? With our voices or with just our thoughts, thanking him for what he's done, confessing our sins and telling him of our desires for things agreeable to his will. In other words, asking God to do what we would want him to do if we had the kind of knowledge that he had. That's what it means. That's what Paul is commanding us to do, to pray. Finally, he says, verse 18, third thing, give thanks. And not just half-heartedly, right? He writes in Colossians uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, another letter that he wrote, he said we should be abounding in thanksgiving. Right? Not just like, oh yeah, thanks. No, it should be effusive. 
Right? That means like just overflowing. Now, we just finished Thanksgiving season here in America. And like I said at the Thanksgiving Eve service, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to have a cultural excuse to talk about gratitude. Not a bad thing in and of itself that, uh, that, that some of the local schools are dedicating a month to an attitude, a mindset, an attitude of gratitude, right? That's a, it's not a bad thing in and of itself. But see, we can become, I think, understandably cynical about things like that. Because if you just take that give thanks command all by itself, it's really a bit thin. Uh, there's not a whole lot there. It's kind of empty. You should just be thankful. Okay, fine. But if you've got no one in particular that you're thanking and no transcendent confidence that things are really going to work out according to a sovereign and a good purpose, then gratitude, that's all, it's just a general mindset. That's all it is. But it has no real lasting value. See, all three of these things that Paul is commanding here, all of them, thanking God, praying, rejoicing, they're almost always in the scriptures linked together. They all go together and you can't have one without the other. Joy without prayer and thanksgiving, it's not possible. It's just an illusion, right? It's a feeling that has no basis in reality. Prayer without joy and without gratitude is not effective because it's just positive self-talk. You're just kind of talking, you're saying what you think you're owed, but, there, but to no one in particular. Gratitude without confident joy and without focused prayer is empty because it's just a shifting mindset. It's based on nothing solid. It's being thankful for nothing in particular to no one in particular. They all three go together. The other thing that unifies all three of these things, rejoice, pray, give thanks, is the fact that they're not just to be occasional things. Did you see that? Right? What is the will of God? Rejoice when? Always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Right? So you're to rejoice when, right? Some of the time? No, always. You're to pray when you feel like it? No, without ceasing, continually. You're to be grateful and thankful on the good days, right? When things are going great, right? Only? No. In all circumstances. Now, of course, I mean, that brings the, the practical question. If I'm praying all the time, right, do, I have, do I even have time to brush my teeth in the morning, right? How am I going to eat dinner, right? What does that mean? Do I, do I ever get to say amen and sort of end a, end, end a prayer? And of course, what's being talked about here is, is an attitude, an approach, an orientation towards an ongoing, regular stream of communication between you and God. An attitude that is continually one of rejoicing. And it doesn't mean that you always have to be consciously kind of saying, I'm thankful for this, I'm thankful for this. I'm th but your attitude, your kind of continual mindset and approach should be one of thanksgiving, should be one of prayer, should be one of joy all the time, continually. Now that's what it says. That's what it says about the will of God. Now all of this can sound very, very theoretical. And so I want to do is I want to, I want to close and I want to kind of try to wrap it up by giving you an extended, a remarkable example of what this looks like to live this way. And I want to do it with an example that's in one of the most extreme situations imaginable and then show you how you can have the power to, to do it. It's a historic example and it's a story that some of you no doubt have heard, but it's the story of Corrie Ten Boom, uh, the Dutch woman who was arrested uh, along with their family by the Nazis in the Second World War in Holland uh, for being a part of an underground resistance movement in Holland and sheltering Jews in their, in their home. Well, Corey and her family, they were devout Christians. They were doing what they were doing because they believed 
in Jesus Christ, not just cultural Christians in name, a family that lived the kind of lives that Paul is commending here, that he's commanding here. Well, after they were arrested, Corey and her sister Betsy were held uh, first in a prison in Holland, but eventually they were transferred to Ravensbrook. Ravensbrook was the largest concentration camp built exclusively for women about 55 miles north of Berlin. And when they arrived at Ravensbrook, they were assigned to their barracks, the large building filled with wooden racks that were meant to be beds, but that's really essentially all they were, were just kind of racks. And this was a barracks that housed about four to five times the amount of women that they were originally built to accommodate. And as they went in for the first time, they were shown to their particular rack within this barracks. Corey lay down and she felt a pinch on her leg. She immediately jumped up, she banged her head on the rack above her, and she cried out, fleas. They jumped to the ground. Betsy, she said, talking to her sister, this place is just filled, swarming with fleas. They scrambled to the floor. They were everywhere. And Corey asked her sister, Betsy, how can we live in such a place? And Betsy said softly, Corey, Corey reports, but Betsy said softly as if to herself, show us how, show us how. And it took a second for Corey to realize that she was not talking to Corey. She was praying. And, and, and Corey wrote about this about her sister. She said, more and more the distinction in the life of my sister between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Right? A vanishing distinction between prayer and the rest of life. What does that sound like in what Paul was just saying? Praying without ceasing, right? A vanishing distinction between prayer and the rest of life. And that's what she was doing. Lord, I don't know how we're going to live. Show us how. Show us how we can live in such a place. Well, Betsy almost immediately, as soon as she asked God for help, said, Corey, Corey, he's, he's given us the answer. He's given us the answer this morning. In the Bible this morning, what was it? Would you read that part again? Betsy pointed to Corey. Corey pulled out the Bible that she had hidden, that they kept hidden, made sure that no guard was looking. She pulled the Bible out of, our, out of her bag and, and said, oh, it was in 1 Thessalonians. And she found the passage. And she, she read it to her sister and said, here it is. Comfort the frightened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Said it was as if it was written especially for them at Ravensbrook. Now, if you remember that text, that was, that was last week's text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Right? This, camp, this camp was filled with thousands and thousands of women who fit that definition, frightened, weak, in need of comfort, and in need of help. And God has placed these two Christians there with the hope of the gospel right in the middle of them. But then Betsy says, go on, keep reading. That's not, that's not all the reading. Keep reading. And Corey continued, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Now pause just a second, and if you have your Bibles open, look down at your Bible at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, and consider for a moment that these are the exact same words that 80 years ago, Corey and Betsy Tenboom were looking at as they stood in their flea-infested barracks at the Ravensbrook concentration camp. These exact words, the same text that the Holy Spirit is trying to use in your life right now is the exact text that he was using in their lives then. And Betsy said after she read that, that's it, Corey. That's God's answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now and thank God for everything about this new barracks. 
Now, Corey reacted like you and I would react. She looked around at the dark, stinking room, and she said, give thanks for such as? <laughs> and Betsy said, well, such as being, for us being assigned here together and not separately. Corey said she bit her lip, and she said, yeah, she said, thank you, Lord Jesus. And Betsy said, such as, as, as what you're holding in your hands. And Corey looked at the Bible. And she said, yes, thank you, Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here, that it wasn't taken from me. Thank you for all the women in this room who will meet you in these pages that we have right here. Yes, Betsy said, thank you for the very crowding here. Since we're packed so close, many more will hear than would otherwise hear. Now, Corey was beginning to grow a little bit cynical thinking that this was pushing it a little bit too far and she kind of prayed and she said thank you for yes lord thank you for the jammed crammed stuffed packed suffocating crowds but betsy was undeterred she kept going she was on a roll and she said and thank you lord for the fleas now Corey just drew the line right here this is too much she said betsy there is no way no way that god can make me grateful for a flea but betsy looked down at the verse and she said, Corey, look at the verse. She said, give, it says, give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are a part of this place that God has put us in. So Corey, Corey reluctantly went along, but she said, this time I was sure Betsy was wrong. Now, what do you think? Be honest. Right? You kind of listen politely to the sermon up to this point, but this just, I mean, this takes it a bit too far, no? I mean, seriously, are you really saying that I should be thankful for my cancer, for my car accident, for my nasty neighbor, for the flood in my basement, for losing my job. It would almost be comical if it wasn't so potentially maddening, if it didn't almost make you angry for someone to look at you and say something like that. But first, get one thing clear. Let's make sure we clarify one thing. No one, Paul included, would be making the case that evil itself is good, that we should call what is wrong right. Concentration camps, injustice, they are not a part of God's prescriptive will they're not things that he says are good or right they are the result of evil they're a result of rebellion against God's law and God's design but don't relieve don't take that truth and be too quick to relieve the pressure and the tension that is here in what Paul is saying to us because you say okay okay you'll concede that bad things are bad but God could stop them if he wanted to right yes I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't say that he, he couldn't at all. He's always and he's everywhere sovereign over all things. Then you would say, then he's in control and he doesn't stop evil? That, that makes, no, makes no sense. No, it might not to us. It might not make sense. And that's really what always and in all circumstances means. It means even when it doesn't make sense. It means even at the times when the circumstances in, in, in the circumstances when what seems to be happening seems to have no greater purpose. Even then, the prayer is not, Lord, I rejoice and I thank you because I know exactly what you're doing. The prayer is, Lord, I rejoice and I thank you in faith because I know that even if I don't know exactly what you're doing, you do. And that's the essential question that we have to settle. Can God be trusted with what he is doing even when we don't understand it? All right, consider this interesting perspective for just one moment. If you're a Christian, do you realize how often we thank God for Jesus dying on the cross? 
You realize that? How often we say that? We pray it all the time. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. God, thank you for the cross. And it doesn't sound strange because we say it so often, but, but was not the cross, <laughs> was not the cross, the, the, the death of the innocent Son of God, was it not the most evil, the most unjust, the most horrific injustice in all of history? Right, can you imagine how silly, how comical, if it wouldn't have been maddening and infuriating, it would have seemed to the disciples of Jesus on the Saturday after Jesus was killed to go into that room to even think about saying something like that. Imagine walking into the disciples on Saturday and say, guys, you know what I think we need to do today? I think we need to thank God for the cross and the execution of the Messiah and our good friend Jesus. Let's thank him for it. And you know, there's a sense in which that, I mean, that might be wrong if you meant by it that the that the acts of those who are betraying Jesus conspiring against Jesus if you meant that you were trying to say that they weren't wrong they were wrong and yet Christian do you not rightly thank God that he not only allowed but that he ordained the execution of Jesus on the cross you do you should you should thank him for it Because without the cross, without the sacrifice of Jesus, you still bear the weight and the consequences of your sin and you have no hope, no joy, nothing for which you can ever be forever thankful. Because on the cross, the Son of God, in the most praiseworthy act in all of human history, took the punishment you deserved and provided the eternal life to everyone who would put their faith in him. Now the point is this, you do not know, you cannot know, all that God is doing in a particular moment or circumstance. But can you not, should you not, must you not put your faith in a God who loved you that much, who was willing to do that for you? Or will you withhold your trust in this God because you think he owes you an explanation for everything that happens? Or because you're so arrogant to assume that you could even understand all the reasons for why what's happening would even be able to be understood by you should he try to explain them. In the big room of Barracks 28 at Ravensbrook, Betsy and Corey Timboom would hold regular Bible studies. They would hold regular times of worship under the constant threat of even worse punishment if they were caught. And Betsy, as she grew sicker and sicker, was assigned, along with the weakest of the other women, to a knitting crew that worked in the barracks. And to her shock and surprise, while she was working all day long with all of these other women, there was almost no supervision, which meant that every day she could speed through her quota of socks that she needed to to knit, and then she would spend hours reading to these women from the Bible, moving from table to table, encouraging them in the hope of who Jesus was and what he had done, right? This was an answer to prayer, but what they couldn't figure out was why. Almost every area of their life was under constant surveillance. Absolutely no privacy, except in the barracks. There the supervisors and there the guards would almost never enter. And then one day, she learned why. There was some confusion among the women as they were knitting sock sizes. They weren't sure what they were supposed to do. And and he asked the supervisor to come in, settle, settle this. But she wouldn't. She refused to go into the barracks. And neither would the guards. You know why? You know what they said? was the fleas. They said, I'm not going in there. The place is crawling with fleas. Thank you, Lord, for the fleas. Look, I don't know the specifics of your circumstances, and you may never learn the the reason why everything is happening the way that it is. 
And I'm well aware that God's command to rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances can seem insensitive to someone who is going through extreme suffering. But while the ways of God might sometimes be to us uncertain and unclear, as we come to this table here, and as we consider what it represents, the goodness and the love of God should never be in question. Because this God, the one who commands you to rejoice and to give thanks, this God has given you the ultimate reason for doing so. In the eternal life that is purchased for you by the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for a gift that we could never repay and for something that we would have not understood if we're honest, as we stood at the foot of the cross. Oh, we could have. You gave us exactly the explanation of why you were doing what you were doing. But Lord, we would have been blinded, almost certainly like the disciples. We wouldn't have understood what was happening. Even though you stood with your disciples and you explained to them what was going to take place and why. Lord, as we come to this table, we pray that you would open our eyes to what has happened, to what has been done, and how that empowers you to trust you always and in all circumstances. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.